Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. Here's your host, Tom Bourne. Hi, and welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. I'm your host, Tom Bourne, and with me today is the awesome Keith Johnson. Keith, how are you? I'm well, Tom. Thanks for the invite, and good to be here this afternoon. It's always good to have hands-on health and safety professionals come on and tell their story. Can you tell us a little bit about how you started in safety and where you've been with your, your safety journey, seeing it's been, looks to be most of your career. Here I ended up in the in the Department of Defence in 2005 and I was an investigator with the military police. So I was trying to find a, a connection between undertaking investigations and what that looked like. And I looked into health and safety. I actually walked into mining after I walked out of the Department of Defence. And after a course of time, within a short, short space of time, I was into a health and safety role. And I guess the in investigating crime and that sort of thing and investigating accidents sort of made sense. With the benefit of hindsight now, I can say that health and safety is a bit more broader than, than what you see just with accident investigations, that sort of thing. I spent a fair bit of time in some mining towns, both up in central Queensland, then in New Zealand, back in Brisbane and, and Perth. And then after a course of time, got out of mining, went into uh, meat processing, that sort of thing, and then, and then moved into construction. And now with infrastructure services, sort of started as a safety advisor and then went into superintendent roles and then mining manager roles with, with safety and, and then ended up with different managerial roles. And, and now I'm the regional safety manager for infrastructure services within Fulton Hogan in Queensland. Excellent, mate. Excellent. 
covered a broad range of industries. Out of all those positions in safety, what's been the, the most challenging position you've had? And I would say all of them had their challenges. The, the one I'd probably land on would be around construction and infrastructure services. But if I looked at the Department of Defence for about three years, I was a recruit instructor there. An example would be I'd take recruits down and teach them how to, to fire rifles, those sorts of things. Young kids on a rifle range operating weapons for the first time in their lives and knowing the bullets come out the end, you you're sort of in the conscious state a lot. You want to make sure that they're keeping their rifle down range, that sort of thing. Mining and quarrying. So mining I started out in when I got into safety and I've been in quarrying now since I've been with Fulton Hogan because that's a part of our business. Both underground and open cut, both of them have their complexities and their challenges. It's a continual moving environment. There's a lot of high risk, a lot of big, big plant, that sort of thing. So and that was complex in itself. Meat processing, yeah, it's a bit... In, in my mind, it was it was a little mundane, it was a little quiet, but again, high risk. A lot of people have got knives, there's blades and cutting implements, that sort of thing. But for me, I would say the, the construction and in particular infrastructure services business has been the more challenging that, that I've seen. And the other examples I gave around manufacturing and mining, that sort of thing, or even construction there, they're normally boxed in, they're on a lease, they've got a fence around it or, or something like that. They're, they're on a specific site and don't move. For the infrastructure services side and what I do around asphalt, asphalt laying, spray seal, that sort of thing, you're continually mobile, you're moving, particularly where the, the sites aren't static. And then you've got the problems with, in particular, your, the members of public. Now, they'll mm -hmm. get to your roadworks. They, they don't like being held up at the traffic. And, and you get things like the abuse of your traffic controllers and trying to deal with that. You don't know what influence the driver is under at the time. And we get a lot of offenders that will drive through roadworks that are drunk, they're drugged, they're, they're stealing a car, they're being chased by police. And all of that at that one time, you're trying to deal with that. You're not expecting it to occur. And some of the things you put in place, a simple stop slow bat is not necessarily the answer. It's not stop a two and a half ton car that's flying through side at 100 kilometres an hour when it's meant to be 40k an hour. So that has been a challenge, that's for sure. I'm trying to understand what that looks like. Best practice would say, let's detour the traffic and don't have them come near us at all. But then you've got the clients who want to make sure that the traffic keeps rolling. So trying to deal with that, I guess. Yeah. When you deal with the public, is it always is it always in your back of your mind that you've got that 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 lovely little provision which is reasonably practicable to deal with? Because, as you said, it's not like you can envisage everything that's going to happen once you add in the human factor. Yeah, correct. So if I'm on a, a standard construction site that might be building a bridge like I said there might be a fence around it if you're a visitor or your subcontractor coming on you will sign in to be on site you're isolated once you're in there you're being directed because you're a subcontractor or a worker or whatever the case may be but on roadworks once you add in the you know the, the member of public that's coming through you you have no say on what they can do I can only hold a stop slow bat that says 40 kilometers an hour or stop and it's you know, virtually up to them whether they want to or not. So it, it's a difficult one and it, it's, it's evolving all the time. We're trying to come up with new initiatives on, on making it safe. But again, if, if it's a, might be a young kid who, who's high on drugs or whatever, if they want to put the, the, metal, the pedal to the metal and fly through sight, then they're going to do that. And our capacity to stop it is difficult. It's just telling our road workers to, to get out of the way. Yeah, some, some, some local governments at least use those wonderful control methods of, of the police on specials. 
quite an expensive exercise though. Ever ever use them? We do use police and more often than not, the police don't get out of the vehicle. And I can, I can only speak from my experiences here in Queensland. I think if we had a bit more of a stakeholder engagement around what that looks like, there'd be better initiatives if we could see the police out of their vehicle and, and being a bit more proactive than, than some of the examples I've seen. And I won't go into that, that just they remain in their vehicle. But if they could be out on the job, then great. I mean, there's been some other initiatives we're implementing now around the roadside behaviour monitoring system which is a looks like a telephone box that's attached on top of a couple of excavator tracks that's got a built-in speed camera on it with some signage when the, the traffic seems to see that now they're, they're slowing down for that initiative so that seems to be working but yeah for police I, I think that just needs to be a bit more proactive from my perspective yeah yeah i i know what you mean and i certainly don't want to go down the path about about that because yeah i don't think it's a positive thing that we can talk about publicly all right, yeah, you've done lecturing at QUT. How did that come about? I had a student that, that turned up to my workplace one day. He was a student for QUT, and she asked me if she could do some work placement with us. And back in about 2017, I think it was, students used to be able to do 200 hours with an employer as part of work placement for them so they could understand what the workplace is really like, get an understanding and feel for how they would fit in, and then they could do some sort of research project as well. So that transpired, and then I, I ended up talking to the lecturer at the time that was there and said, look, I'm interested in doing some lecturing, particularly around accident investigations and emergency response, that sort of thing. That was a bit of a niche that I've been looking into and have had experience with. And the next thing you know, they said, yeah, look, come along. The more external people that have expertise they can bring in that they seem to want to do, as opposed to just the, you know, the lecturer of the faculty being the only lecturer to do the lectures. So it made sense. So yeah, since about 2017, been lecturing on the side at QUT, and it's a good opportunity to see the students. We get to impart some knowledge there. There's some good questions, and obviously there's something in it for me. There might be a student that's looking to for work after the fact, and maybe Fulton Hogan might be their employer of choice. Yeah, and you can cherry pick the best ones, right? Absolutely, yes, <laughs> and we do that. Yeah, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? All right, big police safety all of it involves some sort of public speaking a lot of people still don't feel comfortable in you know even addressing like toolbox talks pre-starts etc do you have any tips for people who are starting out who now find themselves in a position i don't know they actually have to talk to people how to how to do it and how to present them look it started out for me because i ended up being well actually i, I studied speech and drama at school i liked acting so maybe that was where it kicked off but then I joined the army and after about four or five years, I ended up being a recruit instructor, like I said, and I spent three years at the first recruit training battalion. So just about every day I was standing in front of some young kid, albeit I was only 24, 25 at the time, and they were normally 18, 19, and I'd be giving a drill lesson or teaching them weaponry or how to navigate out in the field, that sort of thing. So standing up in front of them and talking just, just became part and parcel of what I did. I have seen examples over the years of, I did see some instructors who were a bit nervous and they used to stand in front of a tree and they would yell at the tree and that seemed to give them a sense of comfort, comfort of how it should work or, or confidence, that sort of thing. Other examples, I've seen people that rehearsed their notes that they had and they, they might do five or six run-throughs, dry run-throughs, may even talk in front of the, the mirror. Secondly, I, I think back to my speech and drama days and, and I'd I'd rehearse the notes that I have and then I'd have someone sitting across from me who was being the other actor and that was enough. 
another way that I could practice doing what I do. Similarly, if I've got to go and give a presentation and I'm doing them all the time now at different conferences, then I might give it to the family before I go so they can give me some constructive criticism and, and away we go. But what I do find that after the first couple of minutes, once you're out on stage, the, the butterflies have gone and then you try and interact with the crowd and bring them in and get them in on the joke and then away we go. Yeah, no, yeah. it took me two years to actually become comfortable with it, but yeah, once, once you're there, you're there. All right, let's talk legislation because, you know, it's important in safety to a degree, to a degree. Legislation, we seem to be going down the path in Australia of tougher and tougher legislations, harsher and harsher penalties for breaching safety acts and regulations. Does that actually make a difference in the day-to-day decision-making of businesses? I think in some regards, it's dependent on the size of the company and what resources they have. So the bigger the company, then the better informed they might be. And an example I might give was a couple of years ago, I went to a mining conference here in Brisbane and the head prosecutor from the Queensland government for health and safety stood up there and he talked about his hit rate for prosecutions. And he said it was a 95%. And in my mind, being part ex-prosecutor as well in military police, you'd, you would know whether you're going to win a case pretty much or not. And in my mind, it was either he was bragging about his 95% or he was putting people on notice to say, if I'm going to charge you, then I'm going to win. So I had the capacity and ability to go to that conference because the company wanted to pay and then I'm able to go back to the management team and then feed that information back to them and say, well, you know, this is his hit rate. These are the things he's looking at and we are put on notice. But the smaller companies who don't have the resources nor the capacity, the finances to to fund things on the side probably don't see those things or are remiss of it. And then as a result, you know, they just run the gauntlet and they get what they get. The other side would be it's the culture of the company and whether they care. And the example I'd give would be, I think it was back in about 2012, Peter Colbert down in Adelaide. He was the owner of the trucking company. And prior to the fatality on the day it occurred, he'd been told by the truck drivers that the brakes on this truck, you know, they're faulty and they need to be fixed. And he was the director of the company and he just decided not to do anything. And then on that that fateful day, the driver drove the truck and then he ran into the power pole and, and unfortunately he died. And then Peter Colbert, the director of the company, he, he sent off to jail and he got 12 years imprisonment. So you know, either you've got to take that care factor into it. Do you care or don't you? And, and there's a prime example of if you don't care, well, the end result is someone could die and then you as the director ends up in jail. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, of industrial manslaughter, a lot of publicity. As it, as it comes about in states and territories. Huge penalties. Do you think apart from the initial shock factor, it's, it's actually made any difference? Because I've noticed since 2018, that's when it first started to rear its head. 2018, the actual number of deaths in the workplace across Australia has actually gone up. It hasn't gone down. I, in my mind, I was never a, a fan of industrial manslaughter. I thought that the criminal justice system as it stood at the time was effective and, and could do things to, it could make an impact still. And I think once we got on, as in the states and territories, got on the bandwagon of industrial manslaughter, then every other state and territory said, well, don't leave me behind. We need to get involved because that's the end thing. But I've read a couple of books and different blogs, that sort of thing, in particular with Greg Smith, the mm. lawyer over at WA, and he's 
his commentary has been quite good about you know what he's seen and at, at the moment there's no real evidence to suggest that industrial manslaughter produces any safer outcomes and I would agree with that and when they had the reasoning as to why they were going to introduce it they never said it was about improving health and safety it was all the other reasons we just want to hold people accountable at the end of the day we know it it disproportionately targets small business owners and I've seen that here in, in Queensland that the people that are actually on the gear are the directors like the, the forklift operator is the director of the company and that's the person who ends up getting punished so it is targeting small business and I don't think that was ever the intent that's just been the byproduct of what comes out and it, it limits and dismisses the our opportunities for learning because once it occurs, most bigger companies will just go for a legal privilege. They're not going to say anything. They only have to hand over what, what happened pre as opposed to post. They won't get into the court system for three or four years. And by that time, everyone's forgotten the topic. And, and then they'll probably go in and likely plead guilty anyway. So there's no real case to answer. It's just, oh, here's your fine and then away you go, or, or unless they get some form of imprisonment, if that's what it's going to be. So think we got lost in the weeds about what what was the intent of industrial manslaughter right it was probably that you know workers imagine workers done thing for, for what i see we imagine one thing and the byproduct of what we got was not what we intended to get yeah yeah do you think there's a do you think there's a better way rather than just throwing people in jail i like the intent of the enforceable undertakings mm-hmm. i think if we can get into a scenario where you know, if if we have an accident on site and there's going to be some form of stakeholder engagement between the parties and then they can put their hand up and go, yes, you got us, we didn't do the right thing, and perhaps they implement some form of training that they've got to do, perhaps they've got to do a research project through a university around that matter that they dealt with. I think that adds more value to the end user and to industries as well, as opposed to just you know, smacking the end user and saying, well, don't do it again. Not sure that provides a lot of solace to the families that have lost loved ones. How do you get them in on the on the journey? That that's another thing. And it's been examples around where they 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 have different legislation that's named after a loved one. An example is like Jet's Law. The young kid was killed by a, a driver that had an epileptic fit and hadn't been taking his medication. So Jet's Law then came in and said, well, if you have an epileptic fit, then certain things need to be done through your medical provider. You may lose your license for a period of time, etc. So is that another another thing that could be done? Maybe there's some avenues that could be different to or as opposed to industrial manslaughter. Yeah, look, I, I t- I've been trying to give that a bit of thought myself. Uh, I kind of think if we also get the people who are involved to do some sort of, I know it sounds weird, public speaking or public awareness campaign about the situation and what could have been done, what should have been done, and then, you know, include things like, I don't know, having to make the call, how they felt when they had to make the call to the family and involved and stuff like that. I think there is better ways to change public opinion than the five minutes of press and then everyone forgets. But as you said, I'm not sure if that actually satisfies families' concerns at this stage. Oh, I think it's got some merit, Tom. We've had accidents in our workplace, that not fatalities, but and the worker involved. You know. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Look, look, I made an error of judgment and not to say that we point the finger at the human, but they've been prepared to stand up in front of a, you know, a group, do a toolbox talk and say, oh, look, this is how this transpired. This is what we could have done better. And these are the opportunities for improvement. So, yeah, I'd agree. There's some merit in that. Cool. All right. Fly in and fly out. You would have been, have done this many, 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 many times, I'd suggest. Yes. How do you feel about it? Personally, I I. Didn't have too many issues with, with FIFO. I, I did FIFO out of South Australia, Western Australia, and the Northern Territory at different mine sites. It, it's double-edged sword. It, depending on what the roster's like, you've got an even-time roster, particularly if you're in the mining sector up in up in the Bowen Basin in central Queensland, they're even-time. So that's not so bad. You, you might get your seven on, seven off. That looks okay. But you go to some of the, the iron ore sites that we've got, some of them can be two and one or three and one, and it's a long time to be away from home. So roster and location can be a significant factor there. If you're working on a remote site like a Cockatoo Island, which is off Western Australia, you might know of. Yep. If you've just had enough and said, well, I'm leaving, well, you can't just drive off site. There's a big pool of water between Cockatoo Island and, and, and the Australian region itself. So what does that mean? There obviously the downsides with it. There's obviously the isolation that comes with it, and that, that can be pretty taxing psychologically. You're away from the family, and you can do the Zoom or the Teams call or FaceTime or whatever it might be, but you're not with loved ones, so to speak. Finding a hobby, you know, I like going to the gym, so that was one for me. I do a bit of study, so I could do some study after hours. But some people just got stuck in a rut and they ended up in the boozer, and, and it was, you know, ten before ten, so ten drinks before ten o'clock, so that they were partly sober before they went to work the next morning. But I don't mind a drink every now and again, but I'm not sure that the answer is in the bottom of the bottle. So when when you're doing FIFO, so that's my thoughts on FIFO. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you, do, do you think that apart from the roster, the the camp you're staying at, the accommodation and the conditions there have a lot to do with, you know, whether, whether you're going to last the distance, whether it's actually good for your mental health or not? Oh, absolutely. Yes, if the, I've had examples where you would hot, hot bunk your rooms. So mm. on, your, on your days off, you'd have someone else come into your room and then they'd stay in your room for the period you're away and then and you were just sharing that room. But, that had its disadvantages. Again, when you're super isolated, if you're on, again, the, the size, most mine sites I went to were quite large, you know, three to 400 people, if not more. But those that are only small, where you've got about 100, then you, you're going to have a limited gym, you're, you're going to have a small boozer. It's The mess has probably only got the one cook, you know, so the variety of food isn't always that great. Again, you're remote. Another sticking point is if your access in and out of sight is via a plane, and you've only got a, a dirt tarmac, that can be problematic, particularly when it rains, because the plane will just say, oh, I can't land because I'm going to get bogged. Mm. So you, 
you just end up remaining on site until the tarmac's dried out and the plane can get in. And if you've only got five days off, then you might end up only having three days at home. So yeah. you've got to consider that as well, and that, that's an issue. Yeah, yeah. All right. Take fives. Hmm. Fan or not? Look, I think they have their place. When I first saw Take Fives 15 years ago, I guess it was, back in mining, it was, this is the product, here's your booklet, you've got to do two a day. Mm. So it was more around quantity than quality. And, and I'd see I'd see people in the crib art, you know, at on their crib breaks, and they'd be filling them in there whilst they're eating their lunch because they know at the end of shift they've got to hand their supervisor you know, two take fives or two BMA safes or whatever they're going to be and and, and, and that's it. But in my mind, I, I see that they're just a, a tick and flick mentality. And I, I, I was reading a coroner's inquest the other day for a case of Adams and Watkins in 2007. This was a Unimap machine, which is like a, a locomotive that fixes up train tracks, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, these, these chaps were working on this train and it was out the back of Mackay in central Queensland. And they, they died as a result of this accident that had occurred. And then when the, the inspector came through or the regulator investigated like their pre-start, that sort of thing, they noticed that. And from their conversations with different people that when they would do the pre-start of the machine, they, they'd look at specific items around lubrication and, and brakes because they're they're critical, but everything else was just ticked off to say as though it's been done. So it was that tick and flick mentality. But what the the coroner came back with, he just said, look, over time, it eroded the assurance that was intended to be provided by that checklist. In my mind, I think the take five can be the same thing. So if you're going to implement it, it's got to be for the right reasons. You're trying to get quantity as opposed to quality. How do you do it? So you've got some sort of buddy system, so it makes sense. And it's if if it's seen only as a measure of activity, because it's a, it's a quality a quantity thing, because you want the numbers, then you're not providing any insight into the effectiveness of your safety management system. So if you're going to implement it, then have some sort of robust measure on how you're going to do it. Can you have a buddy system? You do it in groups, that sort of thing, as opposed to just I want to at the end of the day, because that doesn't work. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Quality, and if you don't actually check them. If you don't actually look at the, the take fives that people have filled out and seeing if they're actually filling them out correct, there's, I would say there's zero point in them, absolutely. And, and it always baffles me when companies say you've got to fill out X amount per day or X amount per week. I mean, where, where does this figure come from? It just magically dreamt it, dreamt it up, perhaps. Oh, and that could well be the case. And you know, I think Greg Smith did a podcast with Rob Long once and he said he was on a mine site and the admin had counted over 8,000 take fives for, for a month for the, the mine that they were at. Most of them were filled out incorrectly, but no one had ever brought up the fact that they'd been compiled incorrectly and it was just, they were put into a database and this was the trending analysis at the end of the month and, and that was it. But yeah, it didn't add any value to the end user whatsoever. It was just a dig and flick capture of information for trending data and that was about it. Yeah. All right. While we're on, while we're on looking about safety metrics, etc., risk matrices. Tell me your opinion on risk matrices and their value. The risk matrix can make sense, but I think they're too subjective. Now, what you might think is low, others might perceive as being medium. 
you might have companies that are chasing a, a statistic around they want a number of high-risk incidents per month so they can show that they're being tracked. If I went back many years ago, there was when we had the floods up in up in the Bowen Basin, I think it was about 2008, and they found some really things had been occurring around OHS, and the regulator got capture of a couple of JSAs that had been compiled and realised that there was a bit of uh, nonsense going on with the way that they were filled out, and it said that if you had uh, if you had a high risk on your RAM, your risk assessment matrix, you had to go to the project manager. So no one wanted to go and bother the project manager. So then they just stymie it and put it in as a low. And that way the supervisor could sign off on the JSA and away they went. And then the regulator came back and said, do you really need to have a risk matrix at all? Can we just get rid of it? You just say, this is the hazard, this is the control and away we go. Now, in my mind, if, if we went down that path, I don't see it as being poor, but if you're going to have a risk risk assessment matrix then you need to understand how it works and make it so it's not as subjective as it is where all people are on board they understand what the, the criteria is and when don't get lost in the weeds on what's the difference between low and high and severity consequence those sorts of things or likelihood but yeah that would be my my thoughts on the ram yeah yeah just on that what's your opinion of the workers who are actually at literally the coalface, do they see any of these safety procedures like JSAs, JHAs, take fives? Are they seeing them as valuable or are they seeing them as just pain in the neck procedures or things they actually have to do before they start their, their real work? I think they perceive them as a, a pain in the neck. And the example I'd give is, I'll see supervisors say to their workers, I'll make sure you sign onto the JSA or make sure you sign onto your safe work method statement. It's not make sure you've read and understood what's required there and then and authenticate that that's the case by signing off on it. I think we just get stuck in a rut where we develop these things and it's just, it's out there in the ether and then it's just another thing that we've got to sign. They don't read it. They don't want to read it. They're not really interested. It's just, let's get on with the job. So. And again, that's probably the, the work is imagined and work is done. So those of us who sit in the you know, the glossy head offices, that sort of thing, that are making up these procedures and everything else are vastly different to how the workers go and do it out in the field. And that's the challenge I think we have. If you're going to go and make a swim, you, you need to get you know, a cross-section of your workforce involved. You need to get out there onto the coalface and you need to be with the workers and then challenge that safe work method statement that you've got because you'll probably look at it and you'll see the way they're doing work and the way you've imagined it on a document is vastly different. So how do you make those changes and how do you make it effective for the end user as well? Yeah, yeah, I agree, I agree. All right, we're getting towards the end. So I might finish up, might finish up with one question. No, I'll go with two. Let's go with the first one, psychosocial risks. I always believe they've always been part of duty of care but they've got a lot of attention recently how do you see most companies or most organizations how do you, what how do you think they're going to manage formally psychosocial risks in the workplace that, that's a good one the social psychology of risk psychological safety etc is it's it's an in in thing now, and it, it's a common theme that's within the the safety fraternity, for want of a better term. 
and I think it's got leverage and it's got legs as well through things like ISO 45003. Uh, mm-hmm. Queensland are about to release a code of practice on mental health and wellbeing. And I think that you know, we've got ISO standards around 45,000 for safety. It's 1,000 for environmental, 9,000 for quality. In time, I believe that something like 45,000, sorry, 45,003 for psychosocial health will become another accreditation that companies are going to need to have as part of their tender. It's valid, but a lot of what you see with psychosocial risks, I think, is it's not always tangible. It's hard to see and touch. And if you went into companies' different investigation toolkits that they've got where they, they hold the data, how many cases are you going to see where someone has put their hand up about stress or you know, the psych- psychological issues within the workplace? Well, I'd say it'd be zero. So we talk the story and we talk about mental health first aiders and well-being, mental health, that sort of thing. But are we really getting through? And by what we're going to do, is it tangible? Is it something that we can see and something we can touch? I'm not sure. But we need to keep on that journey. It's an important subject. And again, yeah, I think it's just important now and we need to look into it. Yeah. Yeah. Look, it's one of those things. Is is it is it a human resources issue? Is it a safety issue? Do we need human resources and safety to actually collaborate or work together on this? I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure. Let's be honest. Absolutely. I believe so. I think human resources and the IHS function and that they need to be involved. And it's, it could be outside of that as well. An example of, of I have at our workplace is I have a, an injury management wellbeing coordinator who is actually a registered nurse. And that person is able to bring some of the things they've learned from their nursing background into the workplace around mental health, that sort of thing. And similarly, human resources, they, they do all this homework around you know, the people that are, are right for the job, that sort of things that they need buy-in with us. So we're you know, stakeholder engagement and we're getting the right people in the, in the right seats for the job. So it needs to be collaborative. Yeah, I, I think so, because I, I look at, we seem to have a dearth of, uh, a shortage of health and safety advisors who are qualified and experienced, I'd suggest at the moment and trying to get someone with a certificate for in health and safety to make a, an assessment on psychological safety i don't know if they've necessarily going to have the skills that's could be required i would i would agree and the more ads as an example for myself when i put out for ads to to get health and safety people or environmental people one of the mandates i have now is is tertiary qualified. I'm wanting to see either a Bachelor of Safety Science or a Bachelor of Environmental Science or maybe a grad dip in OHS. And I'm not disparaging the cert for or the diploma in OHS. They they have their place. I just think if you're going to go down things like you know, topics such as psychosocial health, you need someone who's be able to do their homework, can do the research, can base their findings on the science and then can put something together again that makes sense for the end user. And I'm not sure you get that that advantage through a Cert for or a diploma in OHS. Yeah, I agree with 100%. All right, finally, Keith, biggest challenge in health and safety Australia is facing? What do you think it is? Probably leveraging off that, that topic we just talked about is, is sourcing the talent regarding the minimum standards for safety people or, or environmental people, whatever it's going to be. And for me, I, I like to get tertiary qualified. I, I know they bring something a, a bit broader and wider to the table. That, that's important. I, I do think the psychological safety, I going forward, I believe that safety people need to be 
looking at some form of external study in psychology. Some of the books by Clive Lloyd around psychological safety all make sense. So I think if we can understand why the human brain does what it does, why humans do what they do and their decision-making processes and the biases that come with that, yeah, that that's important. So yeah, I guess it's around the, the talent pool that's out there and then what are the extra things that come with it. Probably another one that does pop up just quickly is around the changing nature of legislation, particularly around codes of practice, that sort of thing. So, you know, the respirable crystalline silica has been around for a while, but it's really getting some momentum now. In Queensland, the code of practice is about to come out. The regulator's hot on the foot with that one. Mental health, the code of practice comes out here in Queensland in May. So, you know, what, what does that mean? And, and what are the, the audits and checklists that come with that? And how a company is going to be held accountable by the regulator to, to do things that they deem as best practice? So, yeah, yeah. probably be my top three. Okay, just before we go, yeah, you brought up something and it just, I, 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 I kind of have to bring bring a, a question pop to mind in here. Harmonisation, and you're talking about Queensland government and other governments and codes of practice. How frustrating is it to you that we've gone from a system that ideally was same, same laws in each state and territory, and we seem to be breaking away from that now? You know, Queensland's got codes of practice that are enforceable by law. Other states don't. We seem to have different regulations coming in in each state and territory. Does it frustrate you? It does. I guess back in 2008, I think, was when they started talking about harmonisation and then 2011 they got released. But then WA only jumped on board what, early last year and Victoria have decided not to do it at all. So I wouldn't say it was a failure from the start, but if you couldn't get one of the states to get buy-in, well, you know, where, where was it going to end? And I've seen the legislation keep changing continually across the different states. So it can be difficult when you when you work across different states and territories as well with the one company because you're trying to you would think that you're taking the health and safety legislation in Queensland will be the same in the Northern Territory, but it isn't necessarily the, the case. So you still got to keep up to date with what's going on there. So I think it was a good intent at the time. It made sense. Yeah, Harmonisation was, I thought, was a good thing. But the byproduct of what we got now is, is we're, we've gone full circle. We're sort of back where we started, but everyone's doing their own thing again. So I don't know. Either we're throwing the toys out of the cot and just didn't understand it, or you know, what, what's best practice look like going forward? Yeah, that part I'm not sure yet. Yeah. Oh, excellent, Keith Johnson. Thanks very much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Okay, thanks for your time, Tom. Cheers, mate. Thanks, Keith. Bye. Thanks for listening to Health and Safety Conversations with Tom Bourne. Until next time, stay safe and enjoy the rest of your week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.